Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, season two, helping pilgrims get ready for their first pilgrimage walk on the Camino. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. Welcome back to the episode that is releasing the Tuesday before Easter Sunday, 2023. In this episode, we are going to be focused on the spiritual side of walking the Camino, focusing on the pilgrimage aspect. For some of you listening, this is the episode you've been waiting for. Hi, this is Nancy, and I do want to mention that for others, this may not be your thing at all. Or you may find yourself somewhere in the middle. Maybe you're spiritual curious. Wherever you are, if you're just about to embark on your pilgrimage, maybe right around Easter Sunday or during April or May to enjoy the Camino in springtime, you may just find some gold in this episode. And if you have a later start date, You can save this episode in your favorite so you can listen again right before you leave for your walk. In a few moments, I'll be introducing my guest, but first, I want to mention a couple of things. The first is to say thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your Camino journey. I love imagining you out there on the trail, stretching your legs and spreading your wings. You are the you in the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast that I'm talking to. And I am cheering you on as you head out to walk. I also want to thank those of you who have joined my email list to receive your free copy of my Camino Planning Roadmap or my top 10 Camino tips that don't usually show up in the top 10 lists. By the way, when you sign up for my email list, You get both of those, regardless of which one you actually requested. The link to join my email list is in the notes for this episode. Next, I want to thank those of you who have joined my email list and have written to me to share your story and Camino plans. I am so touched and inspired by the courage you're bringing to this adventure. Finally, I want to thank those of you who have sent a donation for the Podcast Production Fund. In the final episode of Season 1, I let you know that I had a link in the notes for those who would like to donate, and some of you have. Thank you. Each of these episodes takes anywhere from 8 to 15 hours to write, record, edit, and produce. Your donations help make it possible for me to continue. So thank you. And I have the link to donate back in the notes for this episode. Okay, let's get on to the conversation about pilgrimage that I had with my guest, Father Michael Barham. I had the pleasure of meeting Michael at a recent event of the Northern California chapter of American Pilgrims on the Camino. Michael performed the shell ceremony where first-time pilgrims are presented with a scallop shell, the symbol of the Camino, and a blessing for their upcoming journey. When we chatted after the shell ceremony, 
I learned that Michael had written his thesis on pilgrimage, and I immediately knew I wanted to have him as a guest on this podcast. So let me tell you about Father Michael. Reverend Michael Barham is an Episcopal priest currently serving as the Director of Student Services and Recruitment for the Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, California, which is a seminary of the Episcopal Church. He was ordained 14 years ago and has served churches in the Diocese of Hawaii and California. Most weekends, Michael enjoys supporting his colleagues as a supply priest in churches around the San Francisco Bay Area. When, in the autumn of 1999, Michael first heard about the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, Spain, in church history class at seminary, he knew in his heart he was called to walk the medieval pilgrimage route. In 2001, he made the journey by foot, walking 500 miles from the French border town of Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port to the shrine of St. James the Greater in the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. And that was just the start. Michael wrote his thesis on pilgrimage and gave it the beautiful title, Holy Lingering, a Spiritual Reflection Model for Compostelan Pilgrims. You are going to hear all about Michael's love of pilgrimage and how he has incorporated that practice into his life and ministry. Michael hints at how walking the Camino invites us to bring the practice of pilgrimage into our daily lives and shows us how the big pilgrimage destination of Santiago de Compostela is calling us to explore smaller, closer-to-home pilgrimage places, simple, quiet, less well-known places that give us space and time for reflection, meditation, and prayer. Our conversation covered so many nuances of pilgrimage and walking the Camino that I think this is the perfect topic to kick off the 2023 Camino de Santiago pilgrimage season. So, let's meet Michael. Hi there. Hello. Buen Camino. (laughs) Buen Camino, and thank you so much for joining me on this. I actually can't wait to see what we talk about. Well, thank you for inviting me, and let's let the pilgrimage begin. Perfect. So one of the things, Michael, that intrigued me about you, you shared with me your own personal pilgrimage experience on the Camino and also your thesis that you did in your studies a little while back close to that time. And I would like to just ask if you would do what I always call put the pin in the map and share with us your Camino experience. And then we'll get into that thesis that I'm so curious about. Sure. I'll start by saying how I heard about the Camino and the sense of call to go on the pilgrimage. I heard about it in church history class in 1999 from my professor who I dedicated my thesis to. And it was sort of a side comment in a conversation about pilgrimage in the Middle Ages in the larger context of that period of church history. But for some reason, that put a pen in my mind. I made a little marginal note that I wanted to talk to her about it after class, and which I did. 
And I happened to be fortunate enough to have a grant to do some research the following summer in Europe. And I took my birthday weekend to go to Santiago de Compostela by train. I was going to arrive on the night train early in the morning and then take the night train back to where I was doing my research. Four days later, the only reason I didn't start walking is because it was raining. But I said, okay, next year, I'm going to do this. I had a feeling that's where our story was going when you said you were going to take the train back the same day. I had a feeling this was going to be a different ending. Yeah, I had a number of experiences that made me feel like I needed to stay, to linger a little bit in that that beautiful city. Some spiritual, some religious, some just pure, fun human connection experiences. And I had a conversation with a a person from Ireland who was playing guitar, I think it was, in uh, the archway that you walk through. You know, it's so beautiful next to the cathedral. And we decided we were going to walk if it wasn't raining, but typical to Galicia, it was pouring down rain the next morning. So I got a taxi to the train station and headed out, but definitely with a burning passion in my heart to figure out a way to do it the next summer if I could. What was it? What was going on in Santiago, do you think, that sparked that? I think partly it's related to something that happens on pilgrimage anyway. I was a pilgrim. I just wasn't a walking pilgrim. I made a pilgrimage there. It was a place I'd heard about. I heard a story and I needed to go see for myself. That's fairly common, I think, in pilgrimage. We go to storied places, whether they're personally storied or or shared with millions of people. So I had heard this story, I went, and I was away from my normal milieu. I had time. I would say giving myself that time opened me up to pay attention to things that were happening within myself. And then the connections I was making, I was paying attention to those connections, and they felt right to linger with. I'm using the word lingering a lot because that's in the title of my thesis, so we'll get to that. I was fortunate enough to have a grant. The same grant was promised two years in a row. So I had a grant for the following summer, and I was able to use that grant then to make the pilgrimage to Santiago and to several other places of pilgrimage. The dollar was strong at the time, and it was a a generous grant from the Fund for Theological Education. And I went to Jerusalem. I went climbed Patrick in Ireland barefoot. I went to St. Andrews, Scotland. Uh, walked 100 miles to Canterbury, spent three weeks in Tizé, France, in the community of Tizé, just all over in pilgrimage, uh, places of pilgrimage. And there was a lot of my own journey that was unfolding during that summer. I had made some big life-changing decisions. And that summer was a, a time to process and anticipate those changes being implemented. And It was a wonderfully amazing experience. Well, you've touched on a couple of hallmarks of pilgrimage. The big one that stood out for me is that time away from Mm -hmm. your normal life, from the routine of life, to focus on the internal. Mm -hmm. We need that as human beings. Not everybody gets that. Not everybody has the leisure Mm -hmm. or resources to, to make that leisure time available. And not everybody, I think, necessarily values that and so maybe they don't accept the invitation when it or the opportunity when it arises but i think for those of us who are able 
whether we have the resources or find the resources and we have the time, it can be really meaningful. And for those who don't, I think sharing our stories with them can, can help them to tap in a little bit to the, the value of it and live also a little bit vicariously if they're not able. Mm-hmm. Especially with this particular Camino, though you can do it relatively inexpensively, there is a cost. And there's a cost of time and not everybody has a job where they can just take 40 days and go walk leisurely across Spain. So I do think that finding ways to do that at home, even if we can't go off on a sacred journey, that's a literal pilgrimage, finding ways to learn from pilgrimage and invoke or invite pilgrimage practices into our life can can be a way of being on pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of this. I quote this book often. Are you familiar with The Art of Pilgrimage by Phil Cousineau? So he talks about the call, Mm -hmm. but what precedes the call is the longing. So what I hear so much is that that people see the movie The Way and it calls them and they have to go walk the Camino. They have to do it. And what's behind the call is that longing for those deeper things, those truly human experiences that we're all seeking or maybe becoming aware of our seeking. I would agree with that. And I, I, I love that book. That is one of the, the books that I've read that I think really captures so much of what pilgrimage is about. Mm-hmm. And I would certainly say that he formed my thinking around pilgrimage early on quite a bit. I think that longing, it precedes the call. I think the longing is that time of discerning what it is you're seeking. The call then is pursuing this, what you're seeking, the the awareness of where you need to go to find it, whether Mm -hmm. that's within, Mm -hmm. but the outward can manifest that in certain ways. Very well put. I appreciate that clarification because it's a, it's a topic I've just recently started diving deeper into. Paying attention to our longings is important. Mm-hmm. Whether we do that with a priest or a religious leader or a spiritual director or a therapist, having someone who can help us explore our longings can then help us figure out what our calls are, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Okay, so we were in Europe and you were visiting all of these pilgrimage sites. What happened next? September 11th. Ah. And that relates a lot to where I was in the time because I started noticing as I walked the Camino things that were happening around me. For example, I was in a cafe in Basque and there was on the media a story of a small violent episode, a bomb that had gone off not too far away. I was in no danger, but that made me aware, more aware of what's happening in that part of Spain and and Basque and Timothy McVeigh's execution if I remember correctly it was it was in the news a lot I think he was executed while I walked but if if he wasn't the the conversation around that was happening mm-hmm. and my own moral questioning around my views of the death penalty and my faith was part of the equation and I remember 
somewhere in the Meseta, somebody had written, let your footsteps be kisses. I think that's a riff on Thich Nhat Hanh, right? Let your footsteps be peace. And they had written it in pebbles by one of the crosses, that the, the, the wayside crosses that you see. And when I was in Jerusalem, I walked past a Sparrow's Pizza. And a few days later, while I was on a plane, and, and they would hand out newspapers at that time on the planes, there was an article about that very Sparrow being bombed. And when I was in Ireland, of course, I was aware of the history, of some of the history of the fighting there. And as I was flying into Glasgow, there was some race riots that were happening. When I was in England, of course, I'm aware of the IRA situation. And all of this culminated in my walking, you know, I was praying for peace. I, I felt as I paid attention to all of those things happening and need to pray for peace. So I was praying for peace all summer and I walked to Canterbury. That was the last major site of pilgrimage. Everything after that continued to feel like a pilgrimage. So I don't say the last place of pilgrimage, but it was a place where I had said all of the planned pilgrimages are done for the summer. I can just let down my hair. I had hair at the time. <laughs> Listeners may, may not realize that. Can't I. see it, but yeah, there's there's less hair than there was. That's right. So I could let my hair down and know, I, I told myself and say, okay, I'm going to stop being a pilgrim now. That was maybe around September 9th or 10th, maybe, maybe the 8th. Somewhere in there, I got to Canterbury. I then went to stay at a friend's house, uh, someone I had met on the Camino. And who had talked to me about the, the North and South Downs ways, which I used as pilgrimage routes to Winchester and to Canterbury. So I, I was kind of basing myself at her, her place. And I went back to stay a couple of days with her before I was to head back to London for my flight home. And I turned on the TV and the first tower had just been hit. So it was a kind of a, I wouldn't say a crisis moment, but it was definitely this moment of, well, I've been praying for peace all summer, you know, what is this? What are my prayers worth if this is the culmination of that? Wow. But, you know, that felt like a world-changing event for so many of us. And it certainly continues to, to impact our lives in many ways. And it just reminded me the pilgrimage of peace. No pilgrimage ever ends. The pilgrimage of peace is not over. To continue a lifelong journey of praying for and through those prayers, of course, discern what actions, because prayers without actions, I think, are can easily run hollow. So that's been part of what I think pilgrimage taught me, is to pay attention to what's going on in the world, even when you're in that space of trying to get away from all that's happening in the world a little bit. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to watch the news to stay connected. I do think part of pilgrimage an authentic pilgrimage is a, a richer sense of connection. And even if you're, you're making it for yourself, because you think you need to do it to improve yourself or for whatever reason, even if you don't know why you're doing it, if you set out and you're thinking about this journey for you, it can heighten connections in all kinds of ways, not only connections within yourself and with the divine, but I think it, it can provide space to contemplate your relationships. And hopefully, if they're unhealthy, you may have to end them. But if, if they're healthy relationships, figure out how you want to continue those relationships and bring into it all that you've learned about yourself through the pilgrimage. And I think there's a connection that's happening in pilgrimage in the sense that 
I don't think we ever pilgrimage entirely for ourselves, even if that might be our originating call. So I think one of the questions that kind of emerges in pilgrimage, at least for many people, is what does this matter? Not only for my life, but maybe leading to a question of something like, how do I give back? Or yeah. what what in this will be of value to others? Yeah. Well, I have to go back to Phil Cousineau's book, The Art of Pilgrimage. His final chapter is called Bringing Back the Boon, right. which is the benefit. Yeah. And so if not for something, what's it for? And I also, what you said about connection, you know, I'm making some notes as we go. It was, the question was the connection to what? And you, you explained that you really articulated that well, because so many people will say the Camino is about connection. It's about community. And there's so many ways that we could slice that and look at it and dive into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've touched on a couple of those. Yeah. There's a quote I'll share with you, if, if I may. Yes. From Frederick Buechner, who's a theologian, preacher, pastor. And he says, to journey for the sake of saving our own lives is little by little to cease to live in any sense that really matters even to ourselves, because it is only by journeying for the world's sake, even when the world bores and sickens and scares you half to death, that little by little we start to come alive. Mm. I love that idea that we don't journey for our own sakes, even if our journey is a solitary one physically. I loved the moments of solitude I had on the Camino. I also loved the balance of wonderful communal meals, communal albergue experiences, all of the ways that I got to share my life and other people shared their lives with me. But much of my walking was solitary. And that time was also deeply connective time. And I think it made me more available to other people when I was with them. I can certainly get that from my own personal experience. There's, there's work that's being done that then allows us to be more of who we either say we want to be or we want to be or who our divine power has us scheduled to be, I guess is probably not the best way to say it, but one way to say it. Sense. Would this be a good segue into your thesis? Sure. Yeah. So... I was in seminary when I made the Camino and these pilgrimages. I finished seminary. Part of the life change that I was talking about earlier is that I changed denominations while I was in seminary. So I was not immediately ordained afterwards. I got a job in student affairs at St. Mary's College in California. That's what brought me out here to the Bay Area. And from there, I returned to seminary to do some additional studies that were denominationally specific to my new denomination so that I could be better prepared to serve in that community. And then I was ordained. But while I was in seminary, I did the coursework for a doctor of ministry. And I knew I wanted to do it on pilgrimage. I think from the time I finished the pilgrimage, I I didn't feel like I would get it out of my system unless I just gave up my life <laughs> to like everything in my life and did pilgrimages all the time, which I didn't have a financially sustainable means to do. So the other option was to do a doctorate. I, I think early on, I recognized that might help get it out of my system. And in some ways, did. It, it made me, I think, less addicted to the idea of pilgrimage and more grateful for the experiences I'd already had. 
And then there have been opportunities after the thesis, of course, to make other pilgrimages, but I didn't have that sense of call to always be out on pilgrimage. So that in itself was a pilgrimage, I guess, doing mm -hmm. the doctorate of that. So for a doctor of ministry, it's not like a PhD, it's more of a professional degree for people who are in the occupation rather than in academia. And instead of a dissertation, we write a thesis, a little smaller paper, still tons of work, but more of the work is on the projects that you do, and then you write about your project. Originally, the question that was driving my research was, what is the value of Santiago de Compostela? And therefore, all that comes with it, the shrine, the religion, the religious stuff, the relics, et cetera, spending time in the city itself, what value is there in that? For the Camino, because the Camino is often talked about, you know, the, the way making itself to Santiago is the experience that so many people want, not the being in Santiago. And yet without Santiago, there would be no Camino. So my question was, is there value in staying put in Santiago instead of doing what so many people do, which is stay there for a day or two and then leave? Mm -hmm. I've since realized I that I think maybe it's less about staying there as it is about finding some way to be still, whether it's there or nearby or back home. But I remember reading an account of a pilgrim who talked about running into some friends in the morning in Santiago, sharing a meal, flying home, taking a car for a few hours uh, north in England, and then walking into the house and the spouse saying, ah, you're home. <laughs> and that is not a medieval experience of pilgrimage. No, that really isn't. <laughs> that pilgrim would have had to walk back and sail back to England uh -huh. and then walk back home or maybe take a take a horse or carriage. But our modern way of pilgrimaging is very linear, but the medieval experience was more circular. If you if you made it home, mm -hmm. you did a return journey that mm -hmm. was as grueling as the journey there. And ours usually isn't. We're, you know, at worst the grueling economy class of a flight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So what I moved towards in my thinking by the time I got to the point of writing my thesis is that pilgrimage is more like a circle than a line. Mm -hmm. and thinking about a circle, what are the arcs of that circle that make that circle? And within each of those arcs, are there things we can do or their practices or their aspects of it that we can be attentive to that draw some meaning into that piece of the pilgrimage and i came up with a lovely diagram for all of this but pilgrimage itself is far messier than any real diagram <laughs> you have all these ideas that can just tumble out at any point in the pilgrimage um, mm -hmm. but the heart of the thesis is about is saying that i think we need action and reflection, and that that shouldn't stop when we get our Compostellos. And I think most pilgrims know or experience that instinctively, maybe not on the front end of the pilgrimage, but I think on return home, for many, it's such a life-changing experience or life-impacting experience mm -hmm. that there's an awareness that they need to do something with that. But not every pilgrim has the spiritual vocabulary or the spiritual practices perhaps to 
continue that pilgrimage after they return home. Mm. So that's a very convoluted description of my thesis. My thesis was asking, what would a spiritual model of pilgrimage, a healthy spiritual model of pilgrimage be as a circular journey versus a linear journey? Mm. And I started spending more time emphasizing in my thinking and my writing how we come back home and what we do after we get home as being very important and that moments of stillness or lingering are holy because they can provide some time for the kind of reflection that we need between important experiences and moving forward from them to find the meaning and the purpose for the next phase of the journey. So the, sec- the second and third arcs of my circle were Ultrea and Susea. Ah, would you translate those for us, for our listeners? Onward and upward. Onward and upward. What language are those in? I believe that's Latin. Latin. I've forgotten, but I'm pretty sure that's Latin. And I think it was in a, an old pilgrimage song related to Compostela from the Middle Ages. Although I'm sure it was probably in many things. It feels like a fairly common human thing to say, onward and upward. But Definitely. Probably Shakespeare said it first. I, you know, probably. so many things are credited to Shakespeare, but I'll put those words in the show notes so people can get to know them a little bit better and get the feel of them a little bit more. Yeah. It's been so many years. I think it's in the Codex Calixtinus. Is that the Codex? That that was the first book, as far as everybody knows, the first documentation of the pilgrimage, I think from the 900s. Really early. In the, mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. The first travel travel guide, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Affectionately referred to as. Yeah. So for me, the way I use those in my thesis, Ultrea is coming home, which is not the eight-hour flight or few-hour bus ride or whatever. But there, I think there's a process of coming home that takes a while for some people, maybe weeks, maybe even months. And it's that time of sitting with the experience. And if you don't have time to sit with it, just holding it as you go about returning to work or returning to whatever captures your attention in your daily life. But Ultrea is that process of holding and ideally reflecting on bringing home the the experience. Mm -hmm. And I think there are things we can do to make that real in healthy ways. Would you share share some ideas with us? Yeah, any any reflection exercise that works for you works. Right? Journaling for me, mm-hmm. going for long walks and just thinking, telling stories, mm-hmm. talking with other people who've had that experience or similar experiences. Some people write blogs. Some people write books. A lot of people write books. Yeah. Going to pilgrim gatherings. Mm-hmm one you can get to these are all things and there's endless probably ways i think to unpack your bags mm-hmm. and sort through the laundry <laughs> it's good to mention them though and to put them actually on a list because yeah. i think what happens sometimes is we come back from the pilgrimage from the camino and whether or not you you said it was a pilgrimage on the way over i think many people have discovered it became a pilgrimage. And then what do you do with that? Because we don't necessarily think about that before we go. So to have that forethought and have that end in mind 
It's actually one of the top tips I did on a recent episode is to start with the end in mind, that classic Stephen Covey tip. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I think absolutely incredible advice for your listeners. Mm -hmm. Start thinking about the end. It's hard to know what the end is going to be like. It's hard until you've done it to know how mm -hmm. it's going to back to you. Because there's so many encounters with other people and so many encounters with places and situations that will clarify or reveal your purpose. And as you said, you could start out a tourist and suddenly discover you've become a pilgrim. And I think something that's really good advice that you've tapped on is being intentional before you set foot on the Camino about the spiritual things or the soulful things that will help you make it a pilgrimage versus a tourism is part of, of packing your bags before you go. Mm -hmm. And people often spend a lot of time on the physicality of packing and preparing to go, getting an extra exercise, trying to build up your stamina, reading all of the blogs about exactly how to pack as little as possible, you know, those kinds of things. I like to encourage people to do what you're encouraging people to do, which is think about what you need to pack in your spiritual backpack that will help the journey, help you remember the journey, help you enjoy the journey, not get in the way, you know. And if there's any spiritual discipline you're trying while you're walking and it's not working, for goodness sake, just leave it like you would leave something that you didn't need in your backpack, right? Yeah. I brought one shirt too many. I brought one spiritual practice too many. Let's just let that go to the side of the trail. Maybe someone else will pick it up. That's right. I, yeah. I brought the compass. I never used it once. I found it the other day, actually. And I thought, I just hold on to it to remind myself that there are things that we don't need. <laughs> we remind yourself that you don't need a compass, <laughs> that you have one. Yeah. On the Camino, the, the ways sort of walks you in many ways, but yeah, thinking about what are the things that help me to be reflective and to hold on to memories and to process through those memories. So journaling has always meant a lot to me. So I did a lot of that. Some people say, don't take pictures, just take, take memories. Well, the older I get, the more I rely on pictures for memories. <laughs> and I'm so grateful. I took a camera with me and took way too many photos back when it was film. So I didn't even have any idea if any of them turned out. Mm. But those pictures jog memories, and I'm grateful that I took them. And music is important to me. So I carried pilgrim-related songs that, that I knew from my traditions, and both secular and religious, and, and carried them with me. And now as when I hear them, the memories come back. Sometimes puts me in a reflective mood. So another thing that, that I do and if people like writing letters, I, it could be a good exercise. When, when I have a friend who starts out on the Camino, there's a, a quotation that I love. It's quite long, but it's from a letter called Love's Pilgrimage by Hatterwich, who was a medieval mystic, Beguine, I believe. And she wrote letters to her community. She also wrote poetry. And the letter about Love's Pilgrimage is quite lengthy and it has a lot of spiritual advice for her sisters, but it starts with points of pilgrimage that a pilgrim has to keep in mind before they're about to go on a pilgrimage. And they're all very practical mm. and she then takes those practical pieces and reflects on them spiritually. But I'll, I will write out the, the points. Uh, I think there are nine of them and send them 
by letter to a friend and that writing it out helps me get into a reflective so it occurred to me that one thing someone could do when they come home is write letters to their loved ones which is also something you can do while you're walking yeah by the way i even though email was not such a thing when i went it was a thing and i cherish the emails that i wrote home they were few and farther in between than one might do now because i didn't have a device in my hand where i could do that and it might be three or four or five days before i found the internet cafe mm-hmm. for the days of internet cafes and painfully endure the really slow bandwidth to try to write an email <laughs> hope that you could send it before you drop the connection uh, i remember those days but writing is a obviously for me a good way to reflect mm-hmm. just journaling but writing letters writing emails whether they come back to you or not just the act of writing mm-hmm. helps so Maybe writing letters when you get home to share your experiences with other people can be, and and what you've learned from them can be a good practice. But whatever through life you developed as a skill for helping you to reflect and integrate experiences is helpful. And if you haven't had that, there are lots of resources, of course. Yeah. I see writing, it, it seems to me like a really perfect companion for walking the Camino, because what we do when we walk the Camino is we slow everything down to the pace of walking, which is not what most of us do at home. We're in cars, we're on buses and trains and moving around. And what journaling does is it slows your thoughts down to the pace of writing. And so it seems like such a great companion to walking the Camino. Yeah, I think it is. I walked for a short time with a Spaniard who kept a watercolor journal. And he Mm. would stop each day and watercolor something that he had seen. And so there's different ways of doing it. It doesn't have to be writing, but whatever works. Mm. So your thesis, what, what year did you complete your pilgrimage and what year did you complete your thesis? First walked the Camino in 2001. Mm -hmm. I went back for a shorter pilgrimage with a couple of friends from school, grad school, in 2003 when I graduated. And one of those has become a fellow Episcopal priest in the same diocese I'm in, which is kind of cool to, to think back on. And then I started the doctorate in 2007, and I finished it in 2012. Okay. So that's 10 years since the finish of that and and quite a ways back for the pilgrimage. I'm really curious how this has evolved for you over time. Now that we're in 2023, what has been that evolution for you of the importance of pilgrimage and what you have learned along those paths? There are two trajectories in my mind that I'm thinking of as I reflect on that question. One is how it's impacted my sense of calling in life and my my pilgrimage as a priest in the church. It has shaped my theology or my theological understanding of what priesthood is, especially the hospital eras, I think, have taught me a lot about priesthood. And pilgrimage as a framework for understanding the church and Christianity. And going back to that fourth arc at Susea, 
I think my pursuing my calling to the priesthood is my way of living out my calling to go higher. But I'm really only doing that if I'm helping other people, serving other people. So I think what I've been reflecting on in these last several years is that beyond the bringing the pilgrimage home is what do you do with it? The so what? Why does it matter that you got to spend the money and the time that you got to spend doing this incredible, wonderful thing? What does it matter to anyone else? And I do think that that's part of the responsibility of going on a pilgrimage, whether people accept it or not. giving back. To me, that is going higher at Susea. Mm. Mm. I love that connection you just made. Thank you. Mm. So asking myself, how am I going higher? And in some ways I do that through the priesthood. And in some ways it has nothing to do with the priesthood. It's just to do with being human and being connected to other human beings and being aware, trying to be aware, trying to pay attention to where there's need or suffering in the world and responding to it in the way that I'm able to. To me, that's that's the progression from going on a journey, whether it's travel or pilgrimage, discerning that you're on a pilgrimage, bringing the home, and then the boon that we bring home is, I think Kusineau says, but Campbell, I think, certainly says it is for not just yourself, mm-hmm. but for people who couldn't go. Uh, that it's for the community. So to me, I feel like I've had this incredible gift to to learn about and then make this pilgrimage and the incredible gift of having funding through a grant. Yeah. Made it possible when I was a grad student and had no income and no resources. And to not only go to Santiago, but to go to so many other places that I had heard about much of my life. And many of them had wanted to go through, go to through all of my post-teen life anyway. And honestly, I think the call to go on pilgrimage started much, much earlier than the call to go to Santiago. Hmm. I remember getting a book when I was either early teen or preteen with photos of a day in the life of Ireland. And one of the photos was pilgrims on Reek Sunday walking. I've seen that book. Yeah, there's a, there was one for every country back in the 80s, I think. Uh-huh. Early 90s. And that picture captivated me. And even before that, as a child, our family trips, which were usually fairly local, but the the few big trips we took, my parents always took us to churches. Mm. So when I was really young and we went to Orlando to go to Disney World from Mississippi, where I grew up, one of the things I remember as much or more than Disneyland is my parents taking me to a church and saying, this is where we worshiped when you were born. And this is the first church you went to because they lived in Orlando at the time. And years later, we went to one of my cousin's graduations. And my dad was really excited to see the Air Force Chapel uh, at the Air Force Base there in Colorado. Beautiful building. And the next year, we went to another cousin's graduation. And her baccalaureate, uh, no, her graduation was in the National Cathedral. So trips, intentionally or unintentionally, had this religious site, storied religious site, you know, Mm -hmm. and even small trips, my dad would often find some out of the way, beautiful thing and show it to me and that whether it's religious or not felt like pilgrimages. So I think my parents probably induced a sense of meaningful journeys were, were inspired by my parents and the way they were. 
what I'm hearing in that is there's such a draw of these sacred centers. There's a power, there's an energy, there's a force, whatever you want to call it. The sacredness of it, I think, is what draws us. And whether that is Santiago de Compostela, whether that is a Camino route, what we do know is that millions of people have walked some of these routes and they have walked it out of devotion to an idea that something holy is at the end. That's powerful. Yep. Mm. But what's holy at the end spits us out pretty quickly. Say that again, please. What's holy ultimately spits us out pretty quickly. Say more about that, please. Well, particularly Santiago, but other places too, I think there is a syndrome that people sometimes used to go to Jerusalem and they did never want to leave. But for most of us, there is a pull to leave the place, mm. I think. And part of it is the space itself. When you think of a place like Santiago de Compostela, which is a large pilgrimage place. And if you'll remind me, I'll talk about small pilgrimage places if we have time. You arrive at Santiago, you attend the mass, you see the Bota Fumero, you go have a pilgrim lunch with your companions, you get your Compostela, whatever order you do all these things, maybe do some, some shopping for the, the one souvenir you need to, hold, to take back as your, your token reminder, all of these things. But right behind you is another wave of just as many pilgrims who want the space to do that. And so you kind of have to leave to make room for the next batch. And, and I think that pilgrims who, I wouldn't say this is everyone's experience. My experience, and I have heard other people talk about it, after a few days, when all the people you've walked with are gone, the place starts to take on a different odor. Mm. And you start to realize, I've received a lot from this place but I'm not sure if it has anything more to give me and it's time to go. If you feel it has more to give you, stay. Yeah. But, but also be aware of, do you have something to give Santiago? Because there are people coming in who want that space too. But I think there, there comes a time when you say, I, I've gotten all I can get from this yeah. and I won't get any more unless I leave and take it and reflect on it, work with it, and integrate it in my life. Beautifully put. The yeah. other thing I, I would love your thoughts on, and this was something that I observed when I was there last year, I was there a couple different times last year, is by the time you reach Santiago, a pilgrim has developed a pilgrim identity. They have come to know themselves as a pilgrim, whether or not they started out as a pilgrim or someone just called to the experience of that they saw in the movie, The Way. So when I'm watching people in Santiago, I can see this pilgrim identity when they walk in and there's this strength and fortitude and feet firmly on the ground and celebration. And then the next day, who are we? Mm -hmm. As we begin to get ready to go home or as we leave the city, and I've watched people walking to the train station and there's just a slightly different energy. There's been a little bit of a shift from I am a pilgrim. Now, who am I? Any thoughts on that? Probably too many. We could do a whole <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I can do a two-parter if we want to keep uh, talking. <laughs> yeah, let me think about that some more. But my immediate reaction is I, I do think that's part of the spitting out process that mm. I was talking about. That there is a 
a sense that I am no longer a pilgrim toward something, but I will now always have been a pilgrim and be a pilgrim from something. And that's a new identity that takes as long or longer to form as the pilgrim identity did. Because it, I think there is a, a growing into that sense of I'm a pilgrim, right? Even if we feel like we've overnight become a pilgrim when you stop to think back on it, it's like, oh, this was a becoming process that I, I came to this awareness of identity as pilgrim. And then I am pilgrim. And now I am still pilgrim, but pilgrim from instead of towards. Identifying what it is we're coming from is not just the city of Santiago. Mm -hmm. All of those experiences that got us to Santiago and that we had in Santiago and that we accumulate in the continued journey of life. And hopefully bringing some of those skills of pilgrimage that we learn on pilgrimage to our everyday life. One of the things I learned on pilgrimage that I don't think I really realized until much later, and probably working on my thesis, is we tend to think of pilgrimage as movement towards something or from something. But I actually think pilgrimage is as much about stopping as it is about starting. It's as much about being still as it is about moving. Because even though I walked every day, I also slept every day and I took naps every siesta and I stopped and ate meals in restaurants and had conversations and I stopped at churches and attended the mass. And the stopping was as much a part of the pilgrimage, the lingering mm. in Texas. There's the word again. Uh, as the moving towards. Mm. So carrying siesta into our life, even if it's not the same time of day. Yeah. But that idea of just taking a break, mm -hmm. Sabbath in some religious traditions, this idea of holy rest, mm -hmm. just life. And what you've just described is tells me why it is so important for those reflective times along the way. And especially as you're walking or leaving Santiago or wherever your destination is, walking away from that to really be sure to shine the light on that. And trust that just like on the pilgrimage, the answers didn't come right away. You became the pilgrim. So mm -hmm. now you're becoming who you are next. Right. And, and you're bringing with you all those wonderful experiences that I think the meaning just continues to unfold. Mm. Yeah. Let's go back to, you said, if I remind you, you'll talk about small pilgrimage places. I'd love to hear what that was about. So when I was trying to finish up my doctorate, I had I had a theft of my laptop and I lost some interviews. That's oh. protected, but gone forever. That actually got me moving forward on the on the process of finishing the doctorate, though, because I was kind of at a stalemate of trying to transcribe all of this. And it was a grueling process. And I'm saddened at that loss, but what I gained yeah. in making up for it was really beautiful. Mm. So what happened then is I was able to follow up with the people I'd interviewed and do follow-up interviews. I just wasn't able to do the comparative interviews of the moment they got to Santiago versus years later. And I had I had been in Santiago as part of my, my work to interview people as they arrived. Mm. So I went to the confraternity of St. James office in London, where they have, I guess, maybe 30, 40 years of 
people sending in their pilgrimage experiences, mm -hmm. many of which are very much geared towards creating the wonderful guidebooks that they put out. So it's just documenting the twists and turns of the actual route. But over time, more and more people started to add reflection as they were writing those, which I think just goes to reinforce the importance of reflection and the need to reflect. So there's quite a repository in this library of people's experiences. So I, I went and spent two weeks just doing that and some wonderful other things in England that were all pilgrimage related accidentally sometimes. And I happened to be at morning prayer in an Anglican church in Suffolk Diocese, which is close to where Fraternity of St. James office is. And I ran into a priest who was there that morning and we started a conversation. I told him what I was doing and he said, have you heard of the Small Pilgrim Places Network? Hmm. And I had not, but he informed me of it. And I started looking at their website. I became a member and have really appreciated what they're doing, which is looking at smaller places that don't get millions of pilgrims and naming the value of them as sacred sites and as holy places and places of reflection. And I love that for a couple of reasons. One is an example of a small pilgrim place is Little Gidding, which people may know from the T.S. Eliot poem. But it also has a rich ecclesial history too. I believe George Herbert, the poet, Anglican priest was there. Nicholas Farrar was martyred there. A community, an early community of intentional Christian living was founded there. And then that's why Eliot said it, it was a place where prayer had been valid. And so it was one of his four quartet poems. What was the name again, please? Little Gidding, G-I-D-D-I-N-G. Thank you. And there's a poem by that name by Eliot, T.S. Eliot, where he says that he's gone to kneel where prayer has been valid. And I was able to go there, and it had a wonderful pilgrim experience. There was one other person who was praying the daily office. There was a tiny little candle lit. It was freezing cold, dark, but I was able to kneel and where prayer had been valid. It was very special. And there are lots of churches like these all over England. But really, there are lots of places like that all over, right? And so it's gotten me thinking about sometimes I want to go to those grand storied places like Santiago or Jerusalem or Wrigley Field, wherever it is, right, that's special to you that you've heard about. Yes. You yes. want to get there, you know, the Vietnam Memorial mm -hmm. or used to be Candlestick Park for some people where that's gone. So we have these places, but all around us, there are smaller places where human beings have lived and prayed and they have their own special character. And there's a set of best practices that have emerged. This was several years ago, but it stuck with me. And I, I'm sure their thinking has evolved and improved. But what stuck out to me about their best practices is that unlike Santiago, where there's really a huge spectacle, even though they would not call it that, mm -hmm. all of these people, tourists taking pictures, the the boat of Fumero swinging, you know, 180 degrees on the pulley, all of these things happening in the big city of Santiago. But there are small places where we can go and be quiet and reflect. Mm -hmm. And so their best practices are thoughtful conversation, quiet prayer, and simple hospitality. And all along the Camino, it occurred to me, I was experiencing that 
And that was what, in addition to just the beauty of the walk and the challenge of the walk and the camaraderie, it was those thoughtful conversations and the time to be quiet and and still, and then this experience of hospitality that was often very simple, but so important. So I really love what Small Pilgrim Places Network is doing. And I also love the idea that we don't always have to go overseas on a major journey. We can go down to a local church or to a local field or walk through a local forest, and that can be a holy place for us. Yeah. For many people, nature is that holy place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The sacredness of the earth. Mm -hmm. So it brings up a question for me. Okay. We've been talking about the spiritual and religious and the significance in that regard. For some people, the Camino is not that at all. It's, you know, maybe connection and shared pilgrim meals and that camaraderie that sometimes, to be candid, turns into more of a party atmosphere. So if you were to sit with a pilgrim heading off who is looking for that deeper reflective connection, what would you say to them about finding what they're looking for, maybe fulfilling on their hopes of what their pilgrimage might be? Oh, that's a good question. Well, what first kind of came to mind is really maybe to address the issue of those who are not looking for a deep spiritual experience. That those who are not judge the people who are not looking for what they're looking for. Mm. I think that that judgment will get in the way of your having a good and a spiritual or deep, meaningful pilgrimage. Because the time that you're judging someone else, you're not really paying attention to your own experience. So I, I think there's a, a caution to not assume, make assumptions about other people or judge them because you never know what they're going through, you know, really, and what's happened to them on the road that day. I'm thinking back to my own personal experience when I walked in 2007, my second time, and I was really going back for what I thought was a spiritual experience. And I kept landing in these albergues where there was a party every night and people were around the table drinking and talking and making all kinds of noise. And I felt very much like an outsider because that wasn't the experience that I was after. Yeah. If I'd had you as a resource, what might you have said to me at that time? Good question. I think when we get annoyed on the Camino, especially if we're annoyed with other people, it's probably a good moment to pull away wherever we can and ask ourselves, what is this annoyance really about? And why is what someone else is doing or experiencing getting in the way of my experience? In my tradition, we talk about being able to be quiet within oneself in, in prayer. And people will talk about all the annoyances about external distractions. And the deeper one goes into the practice of prayer or meditation, the more one discerns that the distractions are usually more within ourselves. And so the external distractions become targets for scapegoating and projecting our distractions. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that a party won't keep you up at night. <laughs> <laughs> Practically speaking. But there's a lesson to be learned in that too, in terms of how do we deal with things that get in the way of our journeys in life? Mm. What do we do with our discouragement or our disappointment or our disillusionment 
What do we do with our judgments, with our frustrations? How do we deal with them? How do we cope with them? And encountering people on the pilgrimage who don't have the same purposes and intentions or us as we do is actually, I think, important for our spiritual development, deeper spiritual development, because it is an opportunity to learn more about ourselves and to learn how to deal with these disruptions in our lives in hopefully a kind way. Mm. Kind to ourselves and kind to others. And so I wouldn't say that you shouldn't feel upset or frustrated, et cetera, but own that reaction or that feeling and explore it for yourself. Mm. Maybe when you are no longer in the situation, it might be easier to do that. Yes. I've certainly had moments where it's like, if that person snores one more time, I might become a felon. <laughs> you know, the issue for me, the first few years were, were the smokers. And smoking was allowed indoors when I first started going to the Camino as, as it was when you first started going. And I was not Christian in my thoughts. I was not kind in my thoughts. And I think I inadvertently took the advice you just gave me because over time, now when I smell cigarette smoke, I go, wait, are we in Spain? Are we in Europe? And I get excited because one, that's where all these wonderful experiences took place. But to be candid, that's where a lot of transformation took place for me. And smoking was one of those pivotal issues where I had to break down my intolerances mm. and also be healthy. So extract myself from the smoke-filled bar, which fortunately no longer exists in Spain. Yeah. But I think pilgrimages are not meant to necessarily be easy all the time. Yeah. Those challenges that remind us that we need to rely on something other than what we normally rely on. Mm. My tradition, we'd say that it reminds us that we don't rely on ourselves alone, but on God, or mm-hmm. I don't rely on myself alone, but my community. But maybe also I don't rely on those old habits. Maybe I need to form new habits. So it can become a learning opportunity, though it's not, a, and it's not easy in the moment. But the reflection can help process through that. I'd also say, in our linear thinking, we might think we have to bumble along, following along the same route that the others are taking. But if you need to take two or three days and let a particular group of people move on, you can use those two days to reflect and quiet and recover. It could be there's something within you that you hadn't noticed that you need to work on. Yeah. Or I might notice something I need to work on. Yeah, it could be that maybe what's really wrong is not that other people are having a party, but that you hadn't noticed that your body's hurting and it needs a break. Mm. Or it could be that there's something that's going on in your heart that you hadn't noticed that is hurting and needs. Mm -hmm. So pausing is not always a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. Yeah. But pilgrimage has always, I think, been a vessel for all kinds of people. We read, I mean, read Canterbury Tales, right? They were not all going for the most pious of intentions. And and we see that in Chaucer's work. And that is so true of, I think, of all pilgrimages. There are people who are just looking for a good time or for a a cheap vacation. They're all pilgrims too. And you never know when they might have a life-changing experience 
in spite of how they're doing the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And I also think that people who who over prepare, even spiritually, might not be open to some experiences that would be life changing because they've perhaps over over planned what they want their experience to be. Yeah, and I think what that does is it dials us into expectations as opposed to an attitude of expectancy. Right, and that can that can cripple us in life. Yeah. Mm. There's another aspect of pilgrimage I'd like to touch on. Sure. And I think this reflects the Etsusea that I was talking about. That mm-hmm. for many pilgrims, I think when they get home, there's a desire to give back. And a lot of people give back by becoming hospitaleros. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those who are hospitaleros have so much to teach us about pilgrimage and the, the pilgrimage of life, mm-hmm. but certainly about how we let the pilgrimage shape our pilgrimage from our, our going back home and transform our lives into lives of service for other people. Mm-hmm. Paying attention to the other people in the pilgrimage route who aren't pilgrims can be a really great learning experience. Mm-hmm. I think of all the people, not just the hospitaleros, but the people who live along the Camino who came up to me and asked me to bless them or asked me to carry their prayer to Santiago or ran out on an extremely hot day in the middle of the Meseta where there's no shade and give me a Diet Coke. Or come out and say, I see you're looking for the arrow, the bush has grown over it. Here, here's the arrow so you can see it goes that way. You know, all of those little gestures. I know it must be so annoying to have 300,000 people clicking their walking sticks through <laughs> your town, accidentally or intentionally dropping trash. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the things. And yet they still have a heart when they yeah. see somebody who's struggling to go out and help them. Yeah. You know, the way that I describe it, Michael, is they know what we're up to. They mm. know what we're doing. If they've lived along the Camino for any amount of time and they're, they live in that country where this pilgrimage route goes right by their front door, right through their community, they know where we're going and they know what we're up to. Mm. And to have them holding the space for the pilgrims that pass by is an unbelievable gift. And I think it really serves us to have maybe a focus on reciprocity to be able to bless them as we pass by. Absolutely. And reciprocity, not as a transactional, but as, yeah. a, right? as a spiritual practice is that, that circulation you give, yeah. you receive, you give, you receive. Yeah. Totality has always been about that. You know, even in the ancient time, it was a it was a relationship that was created, not yeah. transaction purely. You said hospitality. Was that the word that you're referring to? Yeah, hospitality. Hospitality, but yeah. We tend to think of hospitality as an industry nowadays, and there's so many beautiful things about the hospitality industry. That becomes transactional sometimes. Mm-hmm. In the ancient days, hospitality was people inviting people into their homes. And so you had an obligation of mutual respect and mutual yeah. care, yeah. not only for property, but for their persons. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to create in your mind a dichotomy of, I receive hospitality, they give it. Mm-hmm. Rooms, we should also be hospitalers. We should be giving. Yeah. Sometimes we give simply by receiving something. I referenced somebody who gave me a Diet Coke. I had given up Diet Cokes to walk the Camino. That was like the thing I wanted to do while I walked. And I was very intentional and good about not having any Diet Cokes. And I was presented with this moment where I did not have enough Spanish to explain why I didn't want a Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. 
So I just received it as the gift it was. And that's all she needed to do was give me that Diet Coke. You know, she, it's what she wanted to do. All I had to do was receive it. And other times we can give. You know, I had pilgrims who helped Lance and clean out my blisters. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. if I lost, lost something, it would appear. Pilgrims can practice gestures of hospitality, not only in response to the hospitality they yeah. receive, but paying it forward to other pilgrims. Definitely. We could do a whole other episode on hospitality and giving and receiving and the role those play in the pilgrimage for sure. But I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll ask, is there any final thoughts or things you'd like to share with our listeners? If you're thinking about doing the Camino, just find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Say yes. Mm. Say yes. Say yes. There's something, there's a longing that has the Camino calling to you at this time. And if you can't, for whatever reason, do it, you can find some ways to bring pilgrimage into your life where you are. Mm-hmm. And that's real and that's valid. It is pilgrimage and it's healthful, I think, for our lives. So if you can't make the Camino when you want to, don't get too discouraged. Try not to get too discouraged. Lean into the learnings of other pilgrims and what they have to teach us about making a pilgrimage and invite some of those practices into your life. However you make your pilgrimage, whether you go now or later to Santiago or some other beautiful place of pilgrimage or find ways to be on pilgrimage at home, may it be a blessing. Yeah. And it's a good time to pick up the art of pilgrimage and start walking through that book. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate our time together. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I think I think our listeners will as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an opportunity for me to reflect more and that's a gift to me. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.